Yeah, Nolan? You know what this is? Is this focus on film? Yeah. Wow. I don't even. I can't believe you, I, I got that how right. How did you come up with that? I'm that was, telling you, man. I, I'm famous for remembering useless things. That that was it's kind of amazing, by the way. That was um, impressive. I gave you about a, I don't know, like a twenty percent chance of getting that one. I think theme songs, particularly if you're, you know, if you're a musical person, I think theme songs really stick with you. We actually, for work purposes, we recently did a thing where we did like a, a 90s sitcom theme video about our department. And, you know, with all the things that I can't remember from the last 24 hours, I could still hum the full house theme. I knew all the words to the family ties theme because we ended up using, you know, one of those for this little video that we made. And it was, it, it focus on film was not really a show we watched, but there's something about seeing the intro for it a couple of times that I remember. I don't know. Yeah. And I, I don't know how, you know, it's, it's so funny now we're going to sound like old men, of course, as usual. Welcome to two twins in an album, by the way, episode, uh, it's been a while since we did this. What episode is it? <laughs> 63 uh, I think. Uh, okay. I'm going to check that though uh to make sure. Do you, are you with that or not with that? It's uh, it's 65. It's 65. Yeah. yeah, 65. So I was way off. This this comment will make me sound like I'm 65, but you know, back in the day uh before everybody was a blogger and everybody was a, you know, social media had a social media channel and uh idiots like us could have podcasts, you know, you had to go to certain lengths to get reviews and uh, notices as they called them in the back in the day, uh, in the theater days of, you know, sort of a um, critique or review of a, you know, movie or whatever. And there are these two guys that probably, you know, our kids will never hear of obviously Siskel and Ebert who had this show focus on film. Uh, the theme you just heard. And, you know, this was the place to go uh, to, to sort of, you know, figure out what was worth seeing and what was not. And two thumbs up, two thumbs down, all that stuff parodied beautifully on In Living Color by uh, men on films. Yeah, that's a great. That's great. right. That's a great bit. Great sketch. But uh, the reason we start with that today, Nub, is is this is probably the closest we're ever going to get to a uh, film review episode. You know, because obviously what we're talking about today is as much about the renowned mockumentary as it is the album, although we are going to dig into the album, you know, no question. This is a, you know, full on review of this record, but uh, this will probably be as close to Siskel and Ebert as we get. You know what I'm saying? For sure. Yeah. It's it's interesting because 
the album is a device in the movie, but it's also an album. It's, it's one of the many Spinal Tap ironies is that it's a soundtrack to the movie. It also replicates one of the most important devices in, in the film, which is this never ending process of recording and releasing <laughs> smell the glove. And the you know, and then there's a direct scene that deals with uh, the cover art. So yeah, it, it's, it's like all things spinal tap, the amount of cleverness that went into it is shown by the fact that it serves all these different purposes. So it'll be interesting to look at it just as an album, but obviously a huge part of the movie for sure. Well, we're going to talk about both. I do want to say really quick, you know, we took a, a week off last week and, and uh, that wasn't just because we're slackers, but I want to give a shout out to uh, Mrs. Nubs who had a little, some, some health, uh, you know, actually was in the hospital for a couple of days, not the vid. She did not have the vid, right? Yeah, um, she didn't. She never got the vid when I had it. Yeah, <laughs> right. Yeah. But but put put a nice scare into all of us because uh, you know I'm sure she's a good a good wife and all. But I'll tell you, she's like the greatest uh, sister in law ever. So you know, Arch, speedy recovery, buddy. And uh, wanted to give that shout out here to your uh, not so lucky lady. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you know, what's interesting is she's going to have a lot of time at home. It's kind of a long road that she has ahead for recovery. And I'm sure that she will fill her days listening to two twins in an album. Just all oh. loop. You well, know? I don't, I don't see what else could bring her not only good tidings, but good health. You know? Exactly. Yeah. I'm sure, I'm sure it's going to be on the rotation. I'm sure she can't wait to hear our thoughts on, you know, Yes, nine zero one two five. Yeah, she certainly hasn't heard enough of us in the last, you know, how long has it been? Fifteen years or whatever. <laughs> yeah, or, right. Exactly. Yeah, I'm sure she's just yearning for more. Well, <laughs> before we get to our closest thing to a film review and discussion, we're kind of channeling our inner uh, rewatchables here. You know, the the, the Bill Simmons pod. Um, but before we get to that, Nub, what do you say we go round and round? Nubbles laying on us, buddy. What's uh, what's been spinning around the uh, the old LP tray for you? Well, it's that sort of late fall period, and that means one thing and one thing only: a huge depletion to my bank account because it's new release season, and ah. uh, you know, and we're back to a little bit of a normal. I shouldn't say normal. We're, we're gaining on normality. In the music industry. So if, if anyone's noticed, there's this flood of new releases that have come out in the last few weeks and will continue to come out as we build towards the old holiday season. So I have three, you know, new albums and next week I'll probably have three new albums. And the week after that, I'll probably have three new albums because there's just so much to dive into. So the first one for me though, is one that I'm you know particularly excited about. And that is the new album from Mastodon. Have you, and you know, T, I mean, you, you know, my love for this band. It's a double album, right? Tech, uh, truly a double LP. It is. Yeah. It's called Hushed and Grim and it is a, a double album. It's the best thing they've done in a while. I loved Once Around the Sun. I thought that was sort of their masterpiece. And of course they had some good stuff before then, but it's really proggy. It's really heavy. It's just sort of a monster, you know, and the guitars are really loud. It's produced by David Bottrell, which gives it this edge that you know he does such a good job with metal bands so i'm loving it man I, I i when you have a chance to check it out i look forward to your thoughts but 
yeah, the new Mastodon hushed and grim is absolutely at the forefront of the turntable right now, for sure. Second is one of the members of one of my favorite bands. And that is a new album from Doug Pinnock from King's Ice. Yeah. Yeah. He's done, he's done quite a bit of solo work in the last couple of decades. He worked under the name Pound Hound for a while, but now he's just putting out records under his own name. And the new album is called Joy Bomb. It's great. You know, big old monster grooves. He plays guitar and bass on it. So you get to kind of hear his guitar stylings and uh, always good to hear from Doug Pinnock. I know King's X just recently hit the road for a little brief tour. So kind of cool that his, uh, his album came out during that time as well. So looking very forward to that. And then friend of two twins in an album. And that is Jim Ward from Sparta and formerly oh, yeah. of at the drive-in and his new solo album daggers, which we talked about a little bit when we had a chance. To talk we actually, to you're Ward. right. We, we have friends of the show now, you know, we have Rupert Holmes, Brendan Bayless, Jim Ward. We got friends of the show. We yeah. certainly do. We have friends of the show and Jim Ward's new album daggers is, uh, is excellent. It's a little heavier than what I might expect. I remember talking to him about this, that the lead single was kind of a upbeat rock tune and, I expected it to be more singer songwriterish, but really good record worth checking out. So yeah, man, new releases. And it's, it's nice to have some new releases spinning around on the turntable. So we'll see if you've got anything new in your running around T. What do you got running around? Well, I have the Mastodon record as well. So that's one. Um, It's not very often we actually match our round and rounds, but, uh, and I've yet to get to it, but, uh, I will be shortly, uh, the great Starflyer 59 has a new record out called vanity. And I haven't listened to that yet either. I've heard the two, uh, singles that were released, uh, life in bed is one and like to lose is the other, but, uh, I haven't heard the rest of the record yet, but those two songs are great. And the third dub is, uh, I know an album that you like, and actually I think you put this on your round and round once. And Eurasia has done an awesome job with these uh, reissues, CD reissues, nothing fancy, nothing crazy, just, you know, double CD reissues where they release the record remastered and then they give you some, usually some live stuff like on BBC Radio One and some, you know, remixes and all kinds of, all kinds of fun. And I say, I say, I say, I think might be your favorite record from them, if I'm not mistaken. It's a damn fine record uh from their 90s period so i'm always pumped uh it had been a couple of years since they did the the one before this but always pumped to see those uh eurasia reissues come in and i say i say i say will be a good uh, revisit so and i will say that is near the top it would definitely be top three i love chorus i've always liked that album and uh you know i, I erasure the thing is their hits are so spread out across albums you ever notice that you know, there's not the one quintessential. I know yeah. a lot of people point to the one, it's on the white cover and it had chains of love on it. The, what is it called? Reissues. Oh, the, the, uh, the innocence. Yeah. Yeah. That, that one's kind of seems to be the closest to, but they, uh, every album is good, but not one like captured everything, but that's good. It means they're spread out over time and they've been so consistent. Such an important group from the last few decades. And I know they meant a lot to you, man. That, that was a big, big group for you growing up. Well, still is, and I, I hope to go see them in the uh, springtime. They'll be uh, coming to the U.S. But, you know, for now, uh, let's shift our focus from, you know, real band. Well, like, these guys are a real band. You know, it's kind of funny because they did this sort of spoof thing. But, you know, these guys played, sang, toured, 
this is a band, which is part of what's cool. And I think part of the charm and part of the reason we can do an episode about this and, and sort of take it at least half seriously is because these guys wrote these songs. They produced this record. They actually played and wrote and produced. And I think that's part of what made this work in addition to just being just so goddamn funny. I think which all can agree. And certainly this is sort of a musician's musician type film and record. But you first and foremost have to have to point out that in many cases, these were sort of portrayals and and especially when it got into satire, you know, these were oftentimes comedy actors who, you know, didn't really play or write. And for these three guys, it wasn't. I think that's part of the charm of it. It definitely helped them take on their characters in a way that was more authentic. If think about it, if they would have been, you know, purely acting and not like sort of method, like taking on character acting and not playing their instruments, the whole thing would have felt just a little more cheesy. It gave it a, a, you're totally right. It gave it a whole added element. The fact that they actually played and wrote and that they were real musicians themselves. And you saw this later when the same, group did the mighty wind thing you know they were showing their range and that way i mean they're 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 really good musicians and they're also hysterically funny and put those two things together as well as some other elements that we'll talk about because this this movie is more much more than just those three guys it it really is oh yeah yeah. and and the intelligence of some of the things that are well outside those three characters but you're totally right that's a big part of the story well, this is going to be a unique episode. We're going to talk. We're going to talk a lot about the movie. We're going to talk about some of our faith. I mean, I watched this thing again, probably for the first time in a few years, like start to finish. And it's just incredible how, how well it holds up start to finish. And you still watch the same st- scenes and they're still so brilliant because of the, the movement of it. It's, it's a collection of sketches. It reminds me of Caddyshack. It's sort of a collection of sketches, but with an arc. And not, you know, to to no surprise, these three guys, you know, foundationally are classically trained in improv and character acting and those type of things. So, you know, it all it all kind of works and all kind of flows in a way that really doesn't get old. I mean, I'm sure you watched it in preparation for this. I mean, don't you find that you can kind of watch this fairly regularly? And I think the first time we saw it, we'll get to in the runner stories. We were teenagers it sort of never gets old. At least it doesn't for me. Uh, And I think a lot of that has to do with the rhythm and the flow of it. It's timeless for us because we can directly connect to the era that they're mocking and the, the elements that they're truly making fun of. I'm not sure how this would fly with a a younger viewer because of the references, but for us, it, it, it is timeless. I mean, you're absolutely right. It never gets old too, just because the intricacies um, there's so much, in there that you would need to watch it five, six, seven hundred times in order to see. And that gives it a status of, you know, you mentioned the Bill Simmons podcast. I mean, it's the ultimate rewatchable, you know, because every time you see it, you either remind yourself of something that's so brilliant, or you might pick up on something you never noticed before. And and that's that's always a good sign. Yeah. And you know, they they did this before a time where a lot of this became sort of mainstream and and normalized art. The mockumentary wasn't, you know, really something that had been fully explored. 
particularly in rock and, and, you know, you see a lot of, um, stylistic parodying here from like the song remains the same and from gimme shelter and some of these films that were, you know, the last waltz films that were very serious, you know, rock and roll documentaries. And you can tell that they picked from a lot of those things, but nobody had really presented it in this way before. That was so, you know, I mean, this is before Gary Shandling. This is before, you know, a lot of this sort of fourth wall um, mockumentary stuff, you know, with uh, the, sort of the, the Larry Sanders, you know, uh, curb your enthusiasm type handheld cameras. I mean, they, there are a lot of things happening here that were certainly well before their time. And obviously you combine that with great performances and some incredibly memorable parts. And I'm sure we'll talk about plenty of them. And uh, you get not just musician gold and not just comedy gold, but, uh, but certainly film gold. And, and we'll see if it's album gold. And uh, why don't we dig into a little bit with those nerdy deeds now? You want some dirty deeds? Yeah. You want some dirty deeds? All right. This is Spinal Tap, which is the name of the film and sort of the name of the album. I mean, it's technically called Spinal Tap, but it's the soundtrack to the film. This is Spinal Tap. So we're going to go with that. It was released on March 2nd, 1984 in conjunction with what has been sort of renowned as certainly one of the greatest comedies uh, about music or about rock and roll ever made. And it was really brought to life by three guys in terms of the characters and then Rob Reiner, you know, serving as the sort of MC of the film as the mockumentary filmmaker, but also as the director of the actual film. So kind of the glue that sort of holds it all together creatively. I got to tell you though, T I, I think there's a glaring miss when right off the bat in the nerdy deets. And I'm sure this, there was some suit that made this decision. This album should have came out as spinal tap, smell the glove, smell the glove. Yeah, it should have, it, you know, really, it's just it a mess. Like I yeah. think they got way too traditional with like, Oh, it's gotta be soundtrack. Cause people will be confused or what. And so, I mentioned earlier that there's an irony to it that sort of works, but there's also a huge missed opportunity just to have it be smell the glove. Well, and, and even before releasing smell, the, they should have put out shark sandwich. I mean, don't you think like it just, it's really just a toot word review. <laughs> so the, the three gentlemen, I mean, and, and listen, you know, these guys are, are geniuses. Uh, Michael McKeon, who plays, you know, sort of the, you know, front man, I suppose, uh, on uh, guitar and vocals, and that being David St. Hubbins. Uh, Chris Guest, who plays the great Nigel Tufnell on lead guitar. And Harry Shearer as uh, Derek Smalls, the uh, bass player. That's the main core of the band. Now, let's not forget, a lot of people forget that you got Viv Savage there on the keyboards, okay? And does some backing vocals, right? And then for the moment, for the moment, you got uh, Mick Shrimpton on drums, played by Rick Parnell. So, uh, you know, and I stress for the moment, because let's be honest, this, this band had a hard time holding drummers. They had a hard time keeping them around, right? It ain't easy being Mick Shrimpton in the movie, you know? Well, and listen, you also got to give a nod to Joe Mama Besser, who t- takes, you know, really steps in quickly you know very quickly uh um, briskly 
in a brisk manner. Yeah. To sort of take over because I'm in, I don't want to spoiler alert too many things in the film, but, um, but unfortunately, you know, Mick Shrimpton does, um, he does pass at the end of the film. He, they're, um, playing a show in Japan and, uh, um, you know, Mick Shrimpton, unfortunately he perishes by, um, spontaneous combustion, which, which is actually the second time uh, you find out that that's happened to a spinal tap drummer where they, it's like a flash of light, flash and, of green light. And that's it. And they're just gone. So, um, so, you know, RIP Mick Shrimpton, but Joe Mama Besser takes over, um, almost seems instant. Doesn't it nub? <laughs> Amazing how Joe Mama Besser just knew all the songs, uh, just came right in and yeah, literally didn't miss a beat. I think that's, yeah. That's always been my interpretation. Yeah. Didn't miss a beat. That, you know? I think that's well put. You know, these guys, um, they, they put out a follow-up record eight years later in 1992 called uh, Break Like the Wind, uh, which uh, has some pretty good, <laughs> pretty good stuff on it. They put one out called uh, Back from the Dead in 2009. So these guys really actually have three studio albums under their belts and, and they toured and never got to go see them. Kind of, kind of a, kind of a mess, kind of a regret, but uh, I don't know. Maybe they'll, maybe they'll take it around one more time. These guys are pros, obviously, in the comedy world and in the acting world. Um, I think all three were on Saturday Night Live, if I'm not mistaken, at one point as cast members. I know that Chris Guest and Harry Shearer were during that Gene Dominion time period. Uh, you know, sort of that like bad era of SNL. I know that both those guys were part of the cast, and I think McKeon was on there as well. At some point, maybe even later, actually, he may have been uh, not for a, a long period of time after, but later. And then, as you mentioned, you know, Nub, these guys uh, obviously found sort of a, a later success with uh, A Mighty Wind, you know, where that was more of a parody of uh, sort of the, the folk music scene. I haven't seen I think there were a couple movies with that band, if I'm not mistaken. I haven't seen them uh, in a long time, but I know those were also very successful. So this obviously was the accompanying soundtrack. I think one of the things that's really, you know, interesting about this is, and as we go through it, it'll be part of the fun, the way the soundtrack sort of, you know, and the premise, I mean, shoot, we don't have to go through. I mean, if you haven't seen this, then stop the podcast, go watch it and then start us up back up again. But, you know, the, uh, the premise is that these guys have been around for a long time. They have this vast catalog of music uh, and, and they're sort of uh, starting to want to break in the U.S. Uh, with their you know, new album that is their first one in a long time called Smell the Glove. And they're met with all kinds of hurdles and intra band drama and issues with their manager. It's like kind of take every rock and roll cliche. Uh, that you'd see in sort of a dr dramatic portrayal of rock and roll at the time and put these guys through it in a very comedic way and shot in this sort of documentary format. So, you know, Smell the Glove is this album that they've been working on throughout the movie. But what the soundtrack really does is the same thing it does in the film is that it gives you music from the band from their career. So they have songs that sound like the 60s because Spinal Tap formed way back then. They have songs that take you through like the seventies. And, and so it's really this like biography of this fake band, but songs that they wrote and are certainly there for comedy purposes, but also, you know, serve as 
part of the the catalog of the group that this uh, film sort of takes you through. So it's kind of neat when you go through it that you're not just listening to the songs from the movie, but you're also in some ways getting the the multiple eras uh, of this uh, multi-decade you know, fake band, which is kind of part of the fun of sifting through this soundtrack. Yeah. That was always one of the things that stood out when I first started watching the movie was it starts, you just think it's just going to be this metal band doing metal songs. And I remember when they first flashed to give me some money, that scene where, uh, what's the guy's name? I'm Ed Bagley Jr. Something yes. Joe. Well, I know it's Ed Bagley Jr. Oh, Stump, Stump, isn't that Stumpy, Stumpy, Pete? Stumpy Pete. Stumpy Pete. Stumpy Joe. Yeah. Stumpy Pete. <laughs> And you're like, great oh, drummer. great drummer. I, yeah. <laughs> you're like, oh, I get it. Like they're going to do this thing where they can show some range and have some fun with all these different genres. So, but the core thing is this rather aging metal band too. I think part of the, yeah. the thing about the movie is that they're not just trying to break in the U S but they're, they're on the downward slide of their career. Right. You know, yet their egos are that of a band that's, you know, the biggest band in the world. And that's just one of the many themes of the whole movie. It's poking so much fun at just the, the ego of touring musicians and this, the idea of that you once were and you're a has-been and you're trying to rediscover that youth or that fountain of youth or that fountain of success or whatever it was before. I mean, there's actually some pretty... Deep might be a little heavy, but there's actually some pretty real themes in the movie that you can't miss out on. Oh yeah. Comedy. You know, listen, these guys were very heady. These, these are like kind of serious guys. Like when you hear them even talk about the movie or talk about the experience or certainly see where they've gone in their careers, these are not like goofballs. These are, you know, heady, intelligent, you know, comedy minds that certainly I think wanted to portray certain themes. It's, It's really funny. So Harry Shearer, who, you know, does voices in the Simpsons and all that, this is many years ago. I saw that he had a show on um, satellite radio, you know, and it was called La Show. I was like, oh, that's Derek Smalls. Like, you know, he does Simpson stuff and like he did Saturday Night Live and it, this is probably hilarious. Like, this is, you know, and so I, I tuned in a couple of times and I was like, whoa, this isn't funny. Like it, he was, it was a political show. And he, you know, and, and he's, he's pretty, pretty out there and he was ranting and raving about, you know, all kinds of stuff. And I, it took me a while, but I, I kept waiting for like the joke. And then I was like, this is a like really serious show. Like he's like actually kind of a, like sort of angry rant and raving dude, you know? So, and, and if you listen, even if you listen to like the commentary on the, the criterion collection did this film, you know, back in the day, you know, they're not like sitting there like giggling about like, you know, stories and recollections. They're, they're talking about the process and the thematics and the sort of metaphors and the references. It's, it's, you know, these, these guys definitely, uh, I mean, they're, they're comedians, but I would not file them under slapsticky goofbally types, even though there are plenty of scenes in this film that sort of represent that style of comedy. It's a terrific point. You know, they're artists, man. And they're, they're yeah. making a statement through their art, but they're unspeakably clever. And the, but they're not pretentious about the themes, right? But they are serious about the messages they're trying to send. And they, you could tell they put a lot of thought into this, but that's one of the beauties of the film T is, and it's the same as Caddyshack. When you could combine the right intention and a lot of thought with 
brilliant spontaneity and yeah. improv. You get that magic. And, and all the parts in Caddyshack are a result of both of those things. I mean, there, there was a vision to Caddyshack of what this thing's going to look and feel like and, and the audience that it was going to take on and the themes that it was going to hit. But then you get these you know, super talented people in a room and just let them go. Yeah. That's what Spinal Tap is too. You know, this is pre-reality TV. This is before our tastes became voyeuristic. And they were tapping into something that wasn't even big yet. It's almost like they knew this style was going to be huge. And that's the pioneering aspect of Spinal Tap. I mean, it really tapped into this voyeurism thing long before it became, you know, so mainstream like it is today. Well said. I, the last thing I want to do before we get to the wonder stories, uh, I do, you touched on a, a big part of this, uh, this whole experience, but certainly the film. And that is some of the, uh, you know, cameo appearances. Now, some of these people were famous in doing a cameo and I'm sure, you know, the Rob Reiner involvement and certainly the, the respect that these three, you know, um, comedy minds had at the time had a lot to do with that, but there were some really interesting and also some really brilliant, hilarious, um, contributions from people outside of sort of this core group. You mentioned Ed Bagley Jr. All he does is play the drums, but it's hilarious, right? And he's Stumpy Pete and he's, uh, and they, you know, they, they describe him as a tall, you know, blonde geek with glasses and, and, and he's drumming on give me some money during this like sixties time period, this early time period for the group, um, which is really funny. There's great Fran Drescher, you know, she plays, uh, she plays like somebody at the record label, sort of like the, uh, I don't know if it's like the A&R No, type. it's a, like the PR person. The PR person, right. Yeah. yeah the publicist. Yeah. 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 And she's really funny. The scenes with, with her and Ian, uh, talking about like the album cover and stuff are just great. You know, she nails it. Billy Crystal, the mime, mime is money. You know, um, he's, he's running the, the, uh, catering group, which are all mimes at this record release party. And they show him in the back, totally not miming, but yapping at his crew. It's very funny. Very funny. Uh, we got, uh, Artie Fufkin, right? Mr. Paul Schaefer, little, little, little Paul Schaefer, <laughs> uh, polymer records who sets up the, uh, the meet and greet and, uh, autograph session for the band which nobody shows up to. And then he tells them uh, to uh, kick his kick ass. ass, kick, the, kick this ass, kick this ass for a man. Artie Fifkin. Great. You know, this, this movie is strewn with fantastic names of characters. Perhaps none better than Artie Fifkin. Artie Fifkin. Dennis Eaton hog is also great. He's the head <laughs> totally. of polymer records. Totally. Um, so as a Wes Anderson uh, fan, which by the way, new film from him that I haven't seen yet. Uh, Angelica Houston is the Stonehenge artist, the woman who, uh, who obviously, you know, was given this napkin, you fuck the napkin, right. Um, but with the dimensions on it for stone, that's Angelica Houston a very sort of young looking Angelica, uh, doing that part, which is great. And then I got to say, probably my favorite one, not terribly surprising is Fred Willard as the, uh, they're playing at a, uh, was it a naval base or a army base or something? Yeah. And, uh, and he plays the guy who welcomes them in and, you know, but <laughs> he says, yeah, you know, my hair is getting a little shaggy. They're going to start thinking I'm part of the band. I'm joking. Of course. <laughs> it's one, it's <laughs> one of my favorite lines, but I, you know, Isn't it enough, where he also says that, you know, we're big fans, not necessarily of your band, but just rock and roll in general. 
Yeah, yeah, no, yeah, right. And maybe play a couple of uh, slower numbers so he can dance. You know? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Um, but you know, the, the, there, there's a tie-in here. You know, particularly between Harry Shearer, who wrote heavily for Fernwood Tonight, which is a show that's very important to us. Uh, and obviously, you know, Fred Willard was a huge part of that as Jerry Hubbard, uh, one of my favorite characters in like the history of television. And that was another spoof you know, sort of mock up of a late night show, you know, set in rural Ohio. And it was just a brilliant concept and Martin Mullen and, and Fred Willard, just amazing. Um, so, you know, obviously I think there was a lot of uh, sort of melding here, even with some of these um, more cameo type appearances of some really, really strong uh, comedy minds. And uh, again, to your earlier point, you know, this is just what happens when you get uh, a lot of very uh, smart, uh, intelligent minds together to, you know, come up with something that could have been done incorrectly if done wrong and it wouldn't have worked. Um, but, you know, struck the perfect comedic tone, uh, struck the perfect stylistic tone, and obviously is pretty legendary and timeless, I think, in many ways. Why don't we get to the wonder stories? We'll talk a little bit more about the film and then we'll get to the songs. All right, Nubs, we'll try to get this to five-ish of our favorite lines, favorite parts, favorite scenes, favorite sketches, whatever it may be within the film. I, I remember us sort of seeing this at the same time. Actually, our mom had a you know musician uh, pal. He's a guy who actually taught, well, quote unquote, taught me how to play bass. Gave me a couple he, lessons. He tried to teach you how to play bass. Yeah. And I remember, I think he showed us Spinal Tap for the first time. You know, we were probably 12. I mean, we were young. You know, there were certain things I remember at that time thinking were funny. And then there were a lot of things that I didn't quite understand yet. But as you grow up, the more you watch it, the more you get a you know sense for what the different comedy angles are, et cetera. But, but we love this even when we were 12, because there were enough sketches and enough lines and enough memorable moments that were even funny at that age, particularly as young musicians, which we were, you know, I remember thinking it was hilarious right away, even at that very young age. Yeah. You have the right recollection. It was, uh, it was her, uh, much younger bass playing, <laughs> I don't know, boyfriend. I don't know, yeah. I, was. was he? I don't know. Pal is probably the right word. It's been a great debate for us over the years. You know, <laughs> sure has. What was really going on there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, and, and I do recall we, we, we got it early. We, we really did, which you can't say for a lot of people. I think there's people that saw this movie five times and still didn't get it. It just happened to tap into our sense of humor, the level of sarcasm and satire and things like that. So definitely got it early, but it was also well explained to us. I want to credit that guy because he, he did a good job of kind of, kind of, framing it for us. And that, that allowed us to just enjoy it. But like all things, man, we became obsessively interested in it. I mean, we probably watched the movie 20 times in the first year that we were aware of it and, uh, you know, grew to memorize it and all those sort of things. But, but yeah, that was definitely the beginning of it. And we, we, yeah, we liked it right from the bat. Well, I don't even, I mean, we'll, we'll do our best on this, but you know, I, I just, I watched it and I was like, 
all right, I've got to try and like size it down a little bit, some top moments. And dude, I ended up like with like 20 thing. I mean, it's so hard to, to try and size it down. I'll do my best. And then we'll have a bunch of honorable mentions. I have a trivia question for you first about the movie. Are you ready? Yeah. This is we'll a good pretend, question. Pretend that the theme music. is. Yeah. We'll, we'll forego all the, all those dramatics, but uh, there are two moments in the film. We talked earlier about the, how these guys really play their instruments and really sing and really write. There are two moments in the film where the guys play their actual instruments live. What are the two parts? So one, one is the easiest question ever because there was a fascination built into that. And I remember the dude who introduced us to the movie explaining that they're sound checking. They're playing, give me some money. Yep, that's one. That's one. Mm-hmm. The other one's going to be tougher. Cause I got to kind of go into the memory bank here. Um, they're actually playing a song cohesively, the whole band. Yep. Hold on. 10 seconds. You know what? I'm going to guess Stonehenge. Okay, you ready? Yeah. The Jazz Odyssey. Oh, that's right. That's right. Jazz <laughs> before, Odyssey. Before the puppet show. Yeah. yeah, that's right. That's right. Yeah. Those are yeah, because Stone Edge was still the recorded version. That's right. Yeah. Good trivia question. Was I I, I gave you about 50-50 chance. That second one's hard. You know, that that's a tough definitely yeah. remember GSM, you know, because it's it's clear they're playing. But yeah, when they're uh when they're opening for the puppet show towards the end and they don't have uh, Nigel and they're sort of um exploring their free form project uh, and they're playing the jazz odyssey you know which uh on the bass derek smalls he wrote this uh, <laughs> yeah he wrote this that's another moment where they're actually playing so uh all right so so nub i i guess we can just kind of go back and forth here did you come up with like your five favorite or did you just like i did just sort of jot down all your favorite moments and you want to mention them or, you know, how do you want to sort of go about it? I would say it's, it stands as kind of a five favorite, but in favorite, I didn't always just go with like what made me laugh the hardest. It's the thing that maybe you and I have referenced the most with each other. One of the smartest moments, you know, so yeah. it's, it's a collection of what I would say would be the, the longest impact moments, the moments yeah. that still make me smile. Let's put it that way. Yeah. Okay. Well, why don't you start us off, buddy? Okay. Well, the first one for me is probably the only one I chose. That's one of the more obvious ones. And there's a couple that I know that neither one of us is going to choose, you know, this goes to 11 and like just some of the things that are really referenced, still very important. But the (laughs) the one for me that just is always good is, you know, we, we've got armadillos in our trousers. (laughs) It's really quite frightening. You know, <laughs> all those scenes where David and Nigel are in that diner, looks like they're in sort of like a burger place. There, There's a few different cutbacks because, they, you know, the stylistically is they, they do a lot of cutouts to interviews with the band. And there's this one sort of interview sequence where, you know, David and Nigel are together and they're talking about their childhood and they're talking about those type of things. And, uh, and there's a amazing scene tied to this idea of what's in your trousers where Derek Smalls go through, goes through the airport metal detector and he, and he's, and he's trying to get through the metal detector and the thing keeps going off because he has a cucumber wrapped in aluminum foil in his pants. Do you have um, any artificial plates or limbs? Mm, no, no, not really. Not really. <laughs> uh, and the best too, is he drops the cucumber 
like on the table. And then he just walks through like he doesn't they don't even make him go back through the metal detector again. He just goes on through. It's a very funny sort of additional piece. And the laughter on the set yeah. for that scene seemed so genuine. Like, I yeah. think everyone is legitimately cracking up. I don't know if it was spontaneous or what the deal was there, but there's a laughter that happens after he drops it and walks away. Yeah. That, that, that seems very real. It does seem legit. It does seem legit and, and understandably so. Yeah, that's a great, you know, we talk often about the half smile. Like, you can tell particularly St. Hubbins is, uh, is trying not to break while Nigel's talking about the uh, armadillos. So, yeah, one of the things I was going to mention was that the scene of, uh, and I've, I just always thought that it's one of the best scenes in the whole the whole film is is Smalls going through the metal detector. I mean, it's just so good. And, and it's a great you know, comedy moment for, for sheer and for smalls who, who play, you know, he's more sort of lukewarm water in a sense, um, which is just another great, that's at the yeah. end. You just named three of my, that my that's <laughs> on my list. That, when he says that, uh, that David and Nigel are, what does he say? Fire and ice. And, and he's more like lukewarm water in a sense. I mean, he says they're, they're Shelly and Brian and fire and ice. And he's lukewarm. Water. <laughs> And that's like sort of a, it's not like an outtake, but that's almost like an extra that they play during the credits. They're after the credits, isn't it? Or is that at the, at the end of the actual movie? I don't know. know They're right. They they do have those splices in the credits. I can't remember if that's that one, but yeah, but that that was on my list. I just jumped a couple of years. So So, um, for me, the two word review. Yeah will always be on my top five list. Yeah. It's a really, and Rob Reiner delivers it very owns nicely. It. Owns it. Um, but you know, when, the, and, and again, I, the laughter there seems very natural. You know, you can't write, you can't write that, you know, you can't print <laughs> that, you know, it's like th- there had to be a lot of moments like that where these guys were staying in character, but they really were. I mean, these guys love to make each other laugh. I, I don't know if you've ever heard there's, there's some, there's some good reels out there of these guys when they're on tour, they would go to these radio stations in the mornings, like with the morning zoo people in character, fully in character. And they would do like uh, interviews and they've often said like, all they were trying to do is just make each other laugh all the time in these characters. Right. And you can get a sense for that uh, with some of these, you know, time periods where there really was sort of organic laughter and you could tell that it was the case. And certainly I think, you know, when they say shit sandwich, it's uh, uh, you know, a very funny piece. Um, Lick my love pump is, yeah. <laughs> it's just so good. I mean, yeah. so Nigel's playing this beautiful piano piece and, and Marty, you know, is sitting there and wow, it's really pretty, you know? And the, the scenes with Nigel and Marty are so good. I mean, that's where you get 11 and that's where you get, you know, a couple other things I'm sure we'll mention. Uh, but, you know, he's playing this gorgeous and he says it's in the saddest of all keys, D minor, you know, the saddest of all keys. I mean, it's, just, it's like great musician joke. And, and then, you know, Marty asks him what the, the phraseology and the, and the wordsmithing of, of the, lines and, and the, the sort of comedy angles are perfect. And you could, I mean, that's when you get pros, these are comedy pros. And he says, well, this piece is called lick my love pump. So he calls it a piece. I mean, it's just great. It's just, it's just so funny. And yeah, I, I love that. See all those scenes with Nigel and Marty are amazing. For sure. That's a great call. Yeah. That that's, 
that that's uh, iconic Spinal Tap for sure. So next for me is uh, I think one of the best pieces of directing. You know, one of the underrated characters in the movie is uh, Ian Faith. I just. Like yeah, Ian's incredible. Yeah, he's excellent. He's kind of the 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 lovable loser manager, who you know cares so much about the band, but just seems to screw everything up. And the scene where he's talking about the cricket bat, yeah, and they cut away Tim just beating the living crap out of TVs and stuff, <laughs> yeah. and then they flash to him and he says, "You know, I just learned that uh, having a large piece of wood in your hand becomes quite dumb." Useful. Useful. Yeah. And it's his delivery of useful. Yeah. It's, it's, it's Australian excellent. accent. It's just perfect. There's some great Ian. One of the parts I love is, and I, one of the great cameos that I totally forgot to mention earlier was um, Howard Hessman, who, who, uh, yeah. where he, sh- he shows up, walks into the hotel and uh, Ian recognizes him. And, and you can tell that, that he barely, I think his name's the Duke, isn't it? or whatever. And you can tell that he barely recognizes Ian. And then he says that great line where he says, well, I'd love to stand here and chat, but we're going to go sit and wait for the limo. (laughs) Just just blatantly saying, I don't want to talk to you, you know? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Again, just stepping into the ego of that whole music scene at this time. Yeah. Really, really good. uh, Howard Hessman there. You know, I talked about the, these really, really great pieces with um, Nigel and Marty that being, you know, Chris Guest and uh, Reiner. And obviously these go to 11 is an iconic piece, but I think just as much, if not more, I love when they're looking at um, the guitars and they're talking about this one still has the tagger on it. And this is like a, you know, a flame and he does the, oh, you know, the sustain. It's like you go have a bite and oh, and then they do that, that bit where, um, where he, he's, you know, tells Marty, you know, don't, don't touch it. And, and then he's, he's, well, I wasn't, I wasn't touching. I was pointing and says, well, don't point at it. And then Marty said, well, can I look at it? And I just, no. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Don't touch it. Don't don't point at it and don't look at it. It's (laughs) because, you know, they're having this sort of like one-on-one, you know, friendly. It's like they did the lick my love, but then then Nigel basically tells him that he just can't even look at one of his guitars. (laughs) (laughs) It's so good. So great. Because it's sitting there brand new and yeah, just, yeah. Don't point at it. Just for that matter. Don't even look at it. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) So that's interesting because my next one is actually Nigel and Marty as well. Again, this is one of those under the radar parts, but I love when Nigel starts talking about how, you know, he, the way he expresses himself is, is through his solos and it's, it's his trademark really. You know, my solos, they're my trademark, really. And then they flash to him. This is a great physical comedy bit where he plays the guitar and then he's, he gets out the violin. It's a total Jimmy Page reference. And he's yeah. playing. And then he has the guitar on the stand and he starts kicking it to play it. And he sticks his tongue out. <laughs> I love the whole thing about the solos. Yeah. You know? it's, it's my trademark, really. There's some really good physical comedy um, musical performance. Viv Savage on the keyboards has some really great stuff, you know, in terms of, and, and I love when, by the way, there's a just great understated line with him when he's just, well, I've got, I've got two hands. So, (laughs) you know, you got a couple of good moments, but, um, but I, I gotta say that, that, um, Derek Smalls, you know, Shearer playing 
just all of his bass playing as Smalls is so perfect physically. And he's got the mustache. I mean, just he really works it really well. But the double neck bass, I think my first big laugh, because um, it happens fairly early. Big Bottom is sort of an early part of the of the film. It's certainly during the first, you know, quarter of it. And when he has the double neck bass, that was my first, even at 12 years old, that was my first big laugh. Cause it was like, what the hell is that? Right. And of course, you know, you come to find out it actually sort of is needed on that song to get that goofy baseline. I don't know if you can see my notes. Number five, big bottom, all, ba- all bass guitars. That's right. They're all playing bass. And that, that's, that's right. where I got the laugh. The double neck was one thing, but when they flash to them individually and each one of them are playing bass guitars for yeah. big bottom, I, that, that was like, okay, this movie's really smart. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's a great point. I forgot that they're all they're all rocking the bases. And that is very funny because they kind of reveal that, you know, they kind of pull back and you they're very subtle. They're very, very smart and subtle about how to make the visual crack and also how to obviously drop the one liners and those type of things. I, I, <laughs> I love I love when uh, they're talking about the album cover being sexist and Nigel goes, well, what's wrong with being sexy? <laughs> <laughs> It's amazing. That had to be improvised. Oh God. That's so funny. That's just so goddamn funny. And (laughs) I think is that that's Fran Drescher in that scene as well, isn't it? Talking about how Yeah. She breaks uh, the news to him that there's a problem with the cover. (laughs) What's wrong with me? And she kind of explains it in this really graphic way. You know, you're telling me that an image of a naked woman and she describes it. And then they're all just like, what? I don't, I don't see the big deal. Yeah. <laughs> well, and the way he says it too, it's just Nigel, Chris guest with that Nigel delivery is just, he's just kills it. He just kills it. And the way, the way he says that, the way he kind of nonchalantly, like just, just not understanding what sexist means. It's just great. It's just great. I, I, I got one that's, so again, oh. th- this is something that like, even early on was a great gag at a young age, but that one scene where just for no reason, they all have the, the, the cold source on their yeah, lips. Yeah. That's funny. Yeah. That's <laughs> like, like It's just one scene, you know, it's like, the, and they really work it. I mean, they do the close ups, like they, they really, they yeah. really kill that visually. And, and then of course, like the next scene and for the rest of the movie, no more, no more herpes source, but how funny is that? It's I mean, a great it's, call. I didn't, I didn't even think about that one. That's a really good call. It's really good. The only other one I had written down was, you know, I think one of the best lines in the movie, just in terms of that understated, you know, kind of dry delivery is, you know, they go through hell to get to Boston and they're there and they just went through this, all this nonsense with the cocky manager and this huge star who didn't, none of them remember who Spinal Tap was or whatever. And then like things are kind of feeling bad. And then, Ian comes in and breaks the news that they're canceled. Right. And uh, the hotel. No, no, the gig is canceled. Right. The gig. Yeah. But don't worry, Boston is not a big college town anyway. Yeah. <laughs> yeah it's like, great. And I tell you to this day, man, whenever anybody says Boston, it's just like, nah, not a big college town. Yeah. This is not a big college town. Anyway. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Don't worry about it. There, yeah. There's, I, there, I, I do, I do want to mention two more. The puppet show things uh, legendary. I mean, like, I mean, a marquee, I mean, we've had our band up on a marquee and how many times have we like 
made the puppet show. I mean, Joe, where, and you know, and Janine, who's great in the movie, she, she's just awesome. If I told them once, I told them a thousand times, you know, puppet show second, spinal tap first, right? Yes. Yeah. It's great. And the, the other one, man, is, um, I mean, obviously the Stonehenge sequence is, is one that mo- many people point to. It's just sort a, of perfect. Yeah. It's a yeah. really, really amazing sketch, but St. Hubbins, Michael McKeon probably has the least cause he plays it kind of straight. He's the front man. He's kind of, you know, he's the one who's, you know, sort of uh, aloof to how awful his girlfriend is and all that. But, but he has a, a great, great really perfectly dropped line when he says um you know i i don't think it was that the band was down i think the problem may have been <laughs> that that there is a stonehenge monument on stage that was in danger of being trampled by a dwarf i mean I when dwarf. He, yeah. yeah when he says that you know the problem may have been i mean it's a it's a great and obviously it's this like dissension piece it's it's sort of the beginning of a lot of the turmoil for the band that takes place midway through the movie but boy what a funny line from him and we'll get to it track by track but the, one of the biggest memories i have of that whole sequence which is it's comedic perfection is that when i was you know i was like a prog kid i really liked the song too i, I always wanted to watch the stonehenge scene yeah just because of the comedy behind it but i actually really really liked the song yeah it's still kind of do you know so well, yeah. they go to nigel for the vocals and sort of correct bridge section it's great the yeah. cool keyboards and stuff yeah yeah, yeah. Oh. well now you're now you're making me want to listen to the record what do you, you well let, let, let's do it then you man. got any more you got any more i we pretty much said the whole movie i think at this point but uh did, did we miss anything on on your list buddy i don't think so man i, I think and I knew this would happen. I think you, you you give us 20 minutes to talk about Spinal Tap. We're pretty much going to recreate the whole movie. So, All right. Well, let's get to the album. Let's get to the track by track. And Nubs, I can't think of a better way to say it than, what do you say? Let's boogie. Tap into America. All right. So, you know, the, the order of the songs on the soundtrack aren't necessarily the order that they're played in the movie, because in the film, they're sort of taking you through the uh, the, the career and the catalog of these guys, which is part of the fun. But uh, on the soundtrack, it more sort of lays out like a film soundtrack would. And and you get started with the uh, unforgettable track one from these guys. Hellhole. I remember one of the uh, one of the bass lessons that I took from the guy who you know the guy who showed us this movie. The, one of the first things I wanted to to learn was that do 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 right. Um, you know, I, I think while Michael McKeon's comedy in the film is probably the most understated for reasons we already mentioned. His vocals as the lead front man and, and, and his vocal performance on all of these songs, I think is really good and really important to the 
sort of tongue in cheek aspect of it. But, um, and obviously these guys are talented. There's no question, but I think that him sort of serving that lead vocal role, the way, the way he plays it and the way he sings it, I think is important to kind of the tongue in cheek nature of these songs. And, and on Hell Hole, I think it's actually a really nice vocal performance and great, great vocal harmonies and a nice riff. And, you know, this is, this is good old rock and roll here, buddy. He's got a pretty brawny voice. You know what I mean? It's, it's, it's strong. There's some, there's a little bit of soul to it, you know, and it just, again, it speaks to these guys as legit musicians, but the thing about hell hole, it's a, it's a great pop song. It really is. You get the harmonies, it's hooky. You've you got instrumental hooks. You've got, you know, the chorus is certainly a hook. It reminds me of the movie symbolically appears to have the band hammering away at trying to make the song a hit. You know, it, it is the song that I think appears in the movie more than any other song. Cause you, mm-hmm. you hear Hellhole multiple times. It, you get the feeling that it's the lead single that they're desperately trying to get play. And uh, that repetition comes through a little bit in the movie, but yeah, it, it's a, it's a good pop song. It, it, it shows their songwriting prowess for sure. Speaking of repetition, you gotta love the title of this one tonight. I'm going to rock you tonight. Baby background vocals background vocals so good i always laugh at the end you know before nigel because this is the song they're playing when nigel rejoins the band on stage um and and i always laugh when it you know there's no nigel but it's just Derek smalls on the background he's going tonight i'm going to ride just by himself you know it's, <laughs> yeah, it's always it's true yeah. it's always a really funny bit but uh pretty good riff there dang 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 i mean that's this i also wanted to learn this one but Nice little punchy song and, and a little goofy, but in kind of a rock and roll legit kind of way, right? I like when Nigel comes in with the finger tapping guitar part. You know, because he's expressing himself. You know, solos are his trademark, really. That's right. Oh, this this track, track three, was the first that the band actually wrote, even before they had kind of the full concept of the film and they were just trying to kind of come up with you know, spoofy kind of, uh, uh, you know, tongue in cheeky sort of uh, metal songs. And, uh, and what came out was, uh, this track heavy duty. So yeah, that you know, you can tell that this was if they were going for something that was, uh, you know, pretty satirical as far as uh, you know coming up with lyrics and with uh, you know obviously some fairly clicheish sort of uh, you know rock or metal riffs and progressions. You know, you can tell what they were kind of going for on this one here with heavy duty nub. Definitely, I, what, the thing I always remember about this is it. Uh, this is a song where is it at the end or in the middle? I can't remember it. Isn't this the song that like references Bacciarini with the do 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 do? Oh is yeah, I, th- I think it is. Let me, let me That's in heavy duty, isn't it? Is it? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you're right. Right at the end of that. Yep. Because <laughs> in the movie, it kind of takes you out of nowhere. You know, they start playing that. But yeah, that's that's always what I remember most. Aside from that, I think it's kind of a bruiser. You know, it, it's. It's fine. It's got some good low end, but I, I never really liked heavy duty. And I was listening to the soundtrack, but I did always like the 
the Bacharini sample. That was kind of funny. This was kind of the first moment where you're listening to the soundtrack. And it's a very funny scene in the, in the film where they're in those pods and Derek Smalls gets stuck. And then at the end, the other two guys go back in and he finally gets freed and, you know, sticks the arm up. I mean, obviously, you know, as we talked about, great, just constant physical comedy from Harry Shearer as Derek Smalls. Uh, but, but this is the first moment of the record where honestly, you're kind of like, oh, this is pretty musical actually. Right. And pretty dynamic. And that's uh, what was the name of one of their uh, records in their deep catalog, uh, Rock and Roll Creation. But see, couldn't God have rested on that day, the day that he created his <laughs> So good. Whole part with the reviews. Oh, this is where it picks up. Here we go. Or this is the middle part. Yeah, this is the cool keyboard part. I mean, that's legit. Yeah, I mean, that's really good. But notice, you know. Well, and listen for- to this bass work right here from Derek Smalls. Here, listen to this. I mean, that's really good. It is. It's like musical and good. And, and you know. I think it's a great song, quite quite honestly. I mean, it just, it hurts my little proggy heart, but they had to take swipes at prog rock too, between this and <laughs> yeah, Stonehead, you know. Totally did, yeah. Which yeah, makes yeah. complete sense in 1980 or whatever it was. But no, I agree there. I think there's two or three moments on here where legit musical talent comes through. Rock and roll creation is definitely one of them. And it is yeah. a great scene in the movie with the pods. Yeah. But yeah. This is one of those that I, I always was like, Ooh, I, I actually do like the song, even, even along with the, uh, you know, kind of the humor behind the scene. It's, I mean, I'm with you on heavy duty. It's kind of just a laugher, but rock and roll creation is a very good dynamic song. Uh, this one, I'm not sure where it shows up in the film. It's probably one of the least memorable here in the middle of the record. And that's America. like kind of the dumbest song on the album but but i think it's a joke right so it's like not i don't think trying to be too serious do you remember when this plays in the movie i don't really recall it maybe it doesn't i'm not sure it does there might be in a deleted scene i know that in some of the reissues of the dvd they included some outtakes and deleted scenes you know maybe it was in there but no i i don't recall this being in the movie we would know if it was. I love what they do here. So obviously this is a British band and, uh, and they wanted to do something that was, you know, just crazy, cheeky British. And uh, they come up with the short and sweet sung by Nigel Tufnell, Cups and Cakes. Is it is it Nigel or is it Viv Savage singing Cups and Kicks? Uh, I thought it was Nigel. I like That's Nigel. Yeah. I like the kind of Sergeant Pepper reference 
yeah. you know, bringing in like the the horns and stuff. Yeah, yeah. It's, 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 it's just a total just spoof on kind of the Britishy stuff. So, well, let's get out the bass guitars, buddy. And uh, we all know what that means. That means big bottom track seven. It's so good. It's just so good. And I'll tell you, like, the chorus to this is really neat. I mean, the lyrics are so funny. I mean, the lyrics rule, and it's kind of a goofy bass thing, but we need to talk about mud flaps, my girl. think the chorus the progression in the chorus is pretty good it's pretty cool some of the keyboard elements they do are actually neat from a layering standpoint but yeah i mean the lyrics of big bottom are amazing and obviously you know to your point what a funny scene that you know they're all playing the bass i almost wonder uh, too if they if because the the bass part during the verses it's very disco you know i wonder if they were because he was a huge deal right around this time that kiss had gone disco. Right. You remember that, but I was made for loving you. And that one album dynasty, it's like basically a disco album. Yeah. And there were a lot of people, you know, taking cracks at that. So I, I, I always wondered, did they set out to maybe do a disco song and they like the riffs. So they turned it into this like bottom end rocker, but yeah, it's, it's a great scene. I, and I actually really do. I like the riff. I think the riff is simple and, and kind of cool. And it's great. Like if you go to the, uh, like the eighties channel or on hair nation on satellite radio, they'll play big bottom, you know, which is, which is pretty awesome. Nubs, this is an important song to the band because, uh, you know, Nigel leaves the band spoiler alert. And what brings him back is this song, which, you know, um, understandably so. And it's probably the first song you'd think of that became a, a hit in Japan is, uh, none other than, um, sex farm. <laughs> <laughs> it's so funny it's so funny that um sex farm is the song that becomes a hit in japan it's that hysterical the, that gets the band back together i mean totally it's just perfect they chose the per you know, they could have easily said hellhole because no, for them to choose Sex Farm, a song that if you don't speak English, you have no clue just how ridiculous and, and like vulgar it is. <laughs> and it becomes popular in Japan is just so perfect. It really is. Uh, a wonderful scene in the movie. We talked about it earlier. Really, it's sort of a pinnacle, I think, comedic scene in the film um tied to this song which uh which nubs from what i'm hearing earlier that uh, you legitimately this is another file this uh, also under a legit good song and that is the very memorable stonehenge Awesome sequence, man. I mean, 
We both air drummed it. I could see you doing it. You could see me doing it. It's like, it's a good song, man. It's a great prog song. It is. Nice keyboard arrangements, nice building, tremendous dynamics. You know, I like the the pass the baton vocal thing. You know, you and I are always big fans of that. And Nigel comes in and sings that bit. I love Stone Edge. I've always seen it as a very legitimate song, you know? And and I, I wonder how they viewed it. You know, I, I, I yeah. assume they put a lot of thought, a lot of time into this one. Some of the others are just sort of dumb rockers, but you know, there's a lot in this one that uh, that took some intention, took some thought. It's a great, you know, it's a great thought. When you see these guys live, I mean, it's worth going on YouTube and seeing a full concert from these guys. They're not playing these songs as a complete goof. I mean, there there are moments where there's musicianship, where they're feel, you can tell they're kind of like enjoying feeling what they're playing. I don't think it's all just a big bit in terms of the music. And I think Stonehenge is a good example of that. There are moments where you're jamming. There are moments where it's musical. And obviously there's a, always a, a very big, you know, sort of goof visually in those type of things when they play Stonehenge. But as far as the performance and the delivery from a musical standpoint, I'm with you, man. There's some really cool stuff. And I think they would even um, agree with that. And you can tell by sort of the way they play the song. Probably not as much the case here, but uh, boy, what a great drum performance by Stumpy Pete here on Give Me Some Money. But baby, I don't intend to leave It's so sad that that bizarre gardening accident took him so early, you know, but it's best that they, they just leave it unsolved. You know, that's yeah. what the best we just, just leave it unsolved. Just leave it unsolved. <laughs> that's a great line. I forgot about that one. There are a lot of great segments from when they're sitting in front of the castle, you know, and they've got, uh, they've got Mick and Viv with them as well. Or, you know, that's, I do remember that part you're talking about is during one of those, but yeah, obviously in the film, you know, this is their, this was early tap, you know, and they show that old black and white clip of these guys sort of with like their mop tops and in their suits on and Ed Bagley juniors on the drums. And, you know, that's always what you think of certainly when you hear GSM. And then it's not said, the first song they wrote together because that would be uh saucy Jack. Nope. Um, they perform it. It's actually the, 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 they don't play instruments, but it's one of the times you get to hear them sing live. Oh, it's, um, uh, oh, you're right. Um, bring it, go, walk on home or something about home. You're um, really close. You're really um, close. Wait, wait, wait. Um, cry, cry, cry all the way home. That's right. Cry, cry, yep. cry all the way yep. home. You got it. The first song they ever wrote. That's a great, that's a great call. And that's during the, uh, the, the diner, you know, scenes where they're talking about growing up together and that sort of thing. Great scenes there. Cry, cry, cry all the way home. Good call. Nub. All right, let's close it out. Now this took you through their seventies, you know, time period. And this is a great visual too. When they're, uh, when Derek Smalls does the, I love you <laughs> or yes. we love you or whatever. He says. Totally. It's so good. <laughs> and they're doing this sort of like psychedelic thing, you know, to, uh, <laughs> to what is a, uh, great, great moment, certainly visually in the film and, uh, a song that gets referenced in a very, very comedic way and in a very great visual during the movie and that's listen to the flower people it's not too late no it's not too late (laughs) 
Hey, uh, N- Nigel playing the sitar, right? <laughs> so the sitar is so it's so good. I gotta tell you though, T, and I don't, you know, I don't know if you had a, maybe it was just our taste because I was so into seventies music, but I actually took this song a little seriously. Okay, like I, you know what I mean. Like this was one of those where I, I sort of quasi appreciated it as a song. I didn't, I didn't love it like I love Stonehenge. Yeah. But for whatever reason, I took this song more seriously than the others. I don't know why. Because you listen back now, and it's like uh, they're completely, you know, taking a piss. But at the time, I, I don't know what it was about me being young and watching this, but I, I took far people seriously. <laughs> well, it's the closer, and it's sort of a little bit more of a, you know, I, I, I guess a sort of serious track musically for them. But you know, it, it's cool how they. Again, they were really crafty about, you know, needing some songs to sort of show the different eras of the group, which is obviously part of the documentary. And the way they use this one to kind of demonstrate their, you know, run through the 70s. And I mean, listen to the flower people. Just it's just good. It's just good stuff. All right, buddy. Well, there's the soundtrack. We talked about the film. Uh, I mean, did it matter? No, what do you think? Uh, the Spinal Tap soundtrack? Did it matter, buddy? <laughs> of course, of course. <laughs> you know, it's just part of the whole thing. And this movie definitely matters. And the songs matter. And the whole thing matters. I, honestly, if any of our listeners have never seen it, please, I mean, please yeah. go watch it. It's Yeah. I'd be surprised if you're listening to our podcast and haven't seen Spinal Tap, but they're Probably are a couple of you, and I would. Yeah, yeah, yeah would that's right. right. What do you think? I mean, of course it matters, right? Yeah, sure. I mean, it, you know, this is for, if you're a musician. Obviously, Spinal Tap is like a second language, you know. And but I think it's important. You know, a lot of people get hung up on the movie, rightly so, because the lines, the scenes, the sketches. I mean, they're amazing, and the comedic performances, and the writing, and the improv, and all those things are are just wonderful but you got to remember the music and i think that's part of what's been fun about kind of doing this episode about it is that you know really keying in on the soundtrack and looking at the songs themselves and even realizing that you know part of what made this work and not just become a complete like slapsticky type thing was that these guys wrote songs they are thoughtful um they're tongue in cheeky but they're good and they have musical direction and in some cases they actually have a lot of I think musical depth to them, which is very cool. And again, um, I think that's a big part of the charm of why it worked. So, so I think that just even from a, from a comedy standpoint, it's important to certainly dig into the film, but also just digging into the songs and the music, you know, as a big part of the overall spinal tap, uh, experience as they tapped into America. All right. Now where you got this one on the final cut, is this on the turntable? Is it, in the collection, collecting dust, or are you taking uh, this is Spinal Tap to the for sale bin? <laughs> Look, if you take this is Spinal Tap to the for sale bin, then you're not living. You know, come on. <laughs> you know, I think it's I, I I just have it in the collection because I think it's just such a symbol of its time. You know, and the songs are always fun to listen to and have a good time with. And you know, if you're at any party with thirty somethings, forty somethings smart people with good taste that are in music, you put this thing on and, and people are going to get a kick out of it. So in the collection, cause you never know when you're going to need it. You know, it's, it's like a, it's like, you know, you never know when you might need to get it out at parties, you know? <laughs> yeah. 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 I mean, exactly. It's in the collection just because I mean, it's, it is the musicians, musicians comedy. Uh, and again, you know, I think that 
putting on the movie uh, is is part of the the charm of the comedy. But you know, putting the songs on. I mean, we have a couple of these songs on our you know playlists that we listen to while we're hanging out with buddies or while we're you know outside uh, drinking and barbecuing during the summer, and it always gets a laugh from those who know it. It's always you know, I mean, it's a, any method to kind of either start a conversation or I mean, it's just like. Caddyshack or Animal House or any of these where, you know, all you got to do is break the seal. And next thing you know, you're slinging the entire movie back and forth with people and the lines and the scenes. And we didn't even talk about Hello Cleveland. I mean, you know, that's uh, that one just I just thought of it. Hello Cleveland. Even when you're playing a gig and you don't know where you're going or what's going on, you just yell, hello, Cleveland, you know, and it works. But uh, there I go. You know, you can't even do the final cut without having one of your favorite lines come to mind. That we <laughs> that's so, true. That's true. But yeah, I'm going in the clutch. And all right, buddy, that was uh, that was fun. Why don't we uh, round it out here a little bit with a little uh, Dolores? You think she liked Spinal Tap? I don't know. I don't, I don't know. But she might be the only non-Spinal Tap fan in the music yeah. industry from the last 20 years. Well, I, don't, I don't think much made her laugh, if I had to guess. Very, very serious. Very serious. Yeah, I don't know. She maybe, she, maybe she was a huge fan. Maybe she loved the Stonehenge scene. Who knows? But let's go in your head. In your head, in your head. No, what do you got, buddy? You had new stuff on uh, Round and Round. Do you have new stuff on In Your Head as well? Uh, not super new. No, no, I wouldn't say anything new. But I do have the song Rats from Ghost, or I guess some people call them Ghost to BC technically, but. That's off uh, their most recent album. It's a lead single. It's a jam for sure. Everything Ghost does is really interesting. I love that band. Second would be a little song by Fear Factory called Supernova. This was a single off one of their later albums. Very, very good underrated Fear Factory song. Gotta love that. New album coming from Fear Factory. It's the last album. Oh, nice. With, yeah, with, with um, Burton C. Bell. He's actually, he's already left the band and they're going to tour without him. But Dino Cesares is pressing on and they're going to continue. So this album is the last one with Burton C. Bell. So I'm looking forward to checking that out. So I've been getting a little bit more into Fear Factory. And then lastly is a little gem from the early 2000s. And that is the song Greed from Godsmack. Band that a lot of people didn't like, but I always liked Godsmack. I thought they were just a good hard rock band. So there you go, T. That is what is in my head. T, what is in your head? Man, I have been on a fish kick. Like you read about um, the, the, the satellite radio channel has a lot to do with that. And it's so cool. You get on there and they're playing shows from the night before. But Harry Hood is, man, I love that one. I just love that one. It's so good. I've heard some great versions on it, um, you know, on the channel, but obviously it's on a live one, which is, I think, one of the best recorded live records, uh, probably of all time, frankly, for a band that's not very easy to capture live. Uh, in sort of a true sort of clean recording sense. And uh, the version of Harry Hood on there is amazing. Uh, let's go uh, Slide Away by Oasis, uh, which has always been a favorite. I, I really like the version that Noel sings. He did like an unplugged version once uh, that was live. That was outstanding. And then uh, we're going to go with uh, Deacon Blues. A little Steely Dan records for you, buddy. Well, that was a great nub. Uh, you know, enjoyed it. You know, episode 65, a little something different. Certainly a film and a collection of songs that uh, I think any uh, musician or music appreciator has come to enjoy. It's fun to relive a lot of those uh, great moments from uh, really one of the funniest films ever made and, uh, and talk through the accompanying soundtrack. So that was a good time, nub. I appreciate it, buddy. Great choice. Love talking about it. And 
you know, let's, let's remember that two twins in an album has gained the reputation of being one of Britain's loudest podcasts. So, you know, there you go. <laughs> yeah, Britain's loudest band. It's so great. It's not like they're good or anything. They're just loud. No, loudest. Right? They've gained the reputation of being one of Britain's loudest bands. <laughs> All right. Well, we'll be back next episode with probably something a little more under control. But uh, but we hope you enjoyed our discussion of the great lads from England, Spinal Tap, and their uh, black album. It's really none more black. I think it's kind of like a black mirror almost. Wouldn't you say nothing? <laughs> all right. We'll go on all day if, unless we get, we cut ourselves off. So why don't we do just that? But that's a wrap on episode 65. We will see you soon for episode 66. Take care of yourselves and stay safe out there. We'll see you next week. Two twins. Well, that's about it. That's all we have. I hope it wasn't too disappointing. We will see you on tour. Until then, take it easy.